0: Hey, it's Andy. Every teen has their stuff they don't tell their parents about, not because they lack trust, but because they're trying to work it out on their own. As much as we wish we could be their go-to for everything, the truth is we can't always provide the objective guidance they need during these crucial years. That's where our partner, Bonfire Digital Wellness, comes in. Imagine your teen having a compassionate coach with years of experience as a high school counselor, checking in weekly to support your teen's social, emotional, and academic growth from fostering healthy habits to managing screen time, and much more. The best part? It's all 100% online. Visit Bonfire DW today and take advantage of a one-month free trial. That's bonfiredw.org slash talking to teens. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Today, we are here with Dr. Lisa Damore. She is the author of two New York Times best-selling books on raising teenage girls. Her first book is Untangled, Guiding the Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And her new book is called Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and anxiety in girls. Dr. Damore writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times. She serves as a regular contributor to CBS News. She has a private psychotherapy practice, and she serves as the executive director of Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so for the people who don't already know about you, can you give us a little background on you and your latest book?
1: So, I've been I got my PhD in 1997. So, I've been a fully practicing psychologist for more than 20 years, and of course I was working, you know, doing clinical work before I got my PhD. So, I've I've sort of been at this for a while and I've taken care of adolescent girls um, as most of the work that I do for a long time. And about 10 years ago, something shifted in what I was hearing from girls. And this was true both in my private practice. And then also I consult two days a week at a girls' school in our community called Laurel School, where I get to see girls in some ways much more in their natural environment, you know, during the school day with their friends, around adults, you know, teachers. and. And so in both of those settings, I started to hear about 10 years ago, girls and also parents talking about anxiety. You know, my daughter has anxiety, my daughter has tremendous stress, she suffers from anxiety. And that felt like a shift from what we'd heard before, that I hadn't heard anxiety as sort of a a central and constant focus in conversations about how girls were doing and what I can say is that that, sh- that that transition, that shift to talking about anxiety has only accelerated. It now feels like it's very broad and we hear about it all the time. And I had written un- Untangled about just normal adolescent development and then was thinking about, you know, what feels necessary next. And it just felt so clear that we needed to try to wrap our hands around this question of where all this anxiety and stress is coming from and then also what we as adults who care for girls can do to address it and and to make it better for girls.
0: The first kind of really interesting point that I had marked in this book is that you kind of talk about how that Anxiety isn't always necessarily bad and the first thing we can do is help our daughters take control of their anxiety You say we can teach them that anxiety is often their friend
1: This is for me, you know, if people take nothing from the book I what I want them to take is that we we see stress and anxiety and by we I mean Psychologists like you know, we've always seen this stress and anxiety as normal healthy functions The way psychologists have always understood anxiety is that this is an alarm system And it tells us when we need to pay attention and when we need to keep ourselves safe. And so, for example, if you're driving and somebody near to you is swerving, you should have an anxiety response. Your alarm should go Mm. off and you should become uncomfortable. And it's the discomfort of the anxiety that will compel you to take steps to address it. And so if you get an anxious response when someone's swerving and then you think, okay, I'm changing lanes to get away from this person, that's mm-hmm. anxiety doing its
0: job. And you have to care about something to get anxious about it, right? Like if if you didn't care about it, you, you wouldn't have any anxiety. It's like the kid before the test who just doesn't care. Um, he's not anxious about it, but he's not really working that hard to study. And uh,
1: Exactly. Exactly, right? And so... So anxiety works both for external threats, you know, like swerving cars, and it works for internal threats. It works for, you know, I've got a test coming up. And and when I I meet with girls and they say, you know, I'm super anxious about this test that's coming, I'll say, well, have you studied? And they say, no. And I say, well, good, you're having the right reaction. (laughs) Like, you should be anxious, right? Uh, You don't want to show up. You don't want to show up unprepared. But then even the point you make... We know that anxiety also improves performance. We know that some tension makes people do a better job. And so we don't want kids, even if they've prepared for a test, you actually don't want a kid in a total Zen state on the way into a test you or a performance or a competition. You want yeah. them to have a sense of being revved a little bit because we see that that actually helps them do better. And so, you know, most of it's good. It's good when it's protective. It's good when it gets your juices flowing. You know, it's good when it makes you do something that you were putting off or not taking seriously. Mm-hmm. And yes, it can also be bad. Right. And I, and I do, you know, I think it's hard for anyone to take psychologists seriously if we do nothing but cheer for anxiety.
0: <laughs>
1: right. right? So, so I say, like, here's when it's bad. It's bad when the alarm makes no sense. It's bad if you have this kind of bagging alarm that is going off all of the time, but there's nothing wrong, right? We don't like that. Um, and we don't like the alarm if it's hugely out of proportion to what's going on. So we don't like panic attacks over quizzes, right? Like that that makes no sense.
0: Yeah, that right, point, right, right.
1: It's good anxiety.
0: So, okay. So what you're saying here sounds like most of the time for most of the things that you're dealing with, where you're feeling anxious about them or where your teenager is feeling anxious about something that's coming up, it's actually probably a good thing. You have a lot of really, really insightful kind of like uh, things you could say, which is fu- uh, funny because what we've been really finding with parents here is that uh, one of the most helpful things is like just ex- examples of what you could say in in different situations and you got a lot of great ones here about anxiety and examples of what you've said to students that you were working with one that i thought was really cool was you talk about this girl who's really anxious about a piano recital that's coming up and so then um you know, yeah, you, you kind of get her to agree that, well, okay, yeah, it's not, it's not all bad. But then your your kind of solution is like, well, how can we sort of start to work her towards the piano recital? Like, what are the little things that she could do, um, the baby steps or something like that? How do you how do you find those, and how do you kind of uh, help push your teenager towards the thing that they're anxious about um, in those kind of baby step ways?
1: something else that really is what drove me to write the book. We have this, you know, completely well under- understood, you know, kind of principle in our field that the thing that is most likely to heighten anxiety is actually avoidance, right? Which is of course people's first instinct. So in that scenario, this is a girl who's scared of going to her piano recital, so she doesn't want to go. She wants to be let out of it. And it's very easy as a parent to think like, oh, it's not that big a deal, or just this once, or you know, she seems so upset, and I can make her feel so much better if so I just say, okay, fine, you know, like we'll just call in sick. And everything right. we know on the academic side is this is going to make it way worse, and and we know why it makes it worse, mm. and and what it does, you know, if we just go to really basic, you know, reinforcement principles in psychology, two things happen at once when you avoid a feared thing. So the first thing is you feel great, right? So you go from anxiety yeah,
0: oh, to a I don't have to do that. Right?
1: Exactly. And, and, you know, anxiety is miserable enough, but if something comes in and just wipes it out, that's a really powerfully reinforcing moment. Yeah. So yeah. what that sets up is the next recital, here comes the anxiety and here comes the like, wait, no, give me that fabulous relief I had before. Right. So yeah, you're, laying right. The, you're laying, you're setting the table for future avoidance. But then the other thing and this is why it becomes such a double like a, such an entrenched um pattern is that when people avoid what they fear they never discover that they probably could have managed it right so yeah. if i am frightened of dogs and i like cross the street every time a dog comes near me i never meet a nice dog and they remain as you know horrifying in my mind as i've ever created them So if this kiddo doesn't show up at the recital, recitals remain this huge, daunting, overwhelming thing, and they get bigger every time she avoids them, as opposed to if we can find a way to get her, like, there. (laughs) Um, And I'll come back to this sort of baby step piece. Then she might be like, oh, wait, that wasn't a big deal after all, or I was uncomfortable, but I could handle it. When we need people to approach things they'd rather avoid, when we need people to go against their instinct, which is, you know, to run from something that's frightening – what really does help is to explain everything I just explained here, right? To say here's why that will make it worse. And I will say to kids, I'll like, I'll say, look, avoiding this is a phenomenal short term solution to the problem. It is a terrible long term solution, right? You're going to make <laughs> right. the long term much, much worse. And so then, once they see how they're actually making it way worse in the long run if they don't, do, if they avoid it in the short term. Then you can say, look, you don't have to get on the stage, do the whole recital. You don't have to do that. You need to engage it somehow. Can you go? Can you... um can you go Can you go and then figure out once you get there what you're going to do? Can you go and can you listen to everybody else? Can you talk with your piano teacher about if there's a way that you can go to the place where the recital is going to be held and practice once there and see how it feels? You know, but mm. that's where it's really fun, and that's where psychologists get to be creative. Like, you know, what bearable version of this can you engage? And the other thing we do, and this, is, again, this gets sort of lost in the panic around anxiety, We can teach people how to control their anxiety when it comes around, right? We can teach them, Yeah. here, you know, you're going to get there and it's going to feel crummy. Here are all your strategies. And, of course, like high, high, high on the list are things like breathing and muscle relaxation, which which really work. And sometimes you have to show people how they really work, but they really work. So it's not like we're saying, like, you know – throwing people overboard and saying, like, well, good luck, right? I mean, we're going to throw them overboard. We're going to teach them how to swim in that anxiety. And then we're going to see how deep they can get into the pool.
0: Yeah, I love that because I feel like there are so many times in your life where you are not sure if you can do something or where you surprise yourself. And if you let, if you let your teenager off the hook all the time whenever they're feeling anxious, then they miss out on those opportunities to, you know, push themselves and surprise themselves with what they're able to do. Does the idea of getting a job stress your teen out? Check out my friends over at Teen Job Prep. They've created a one-stop shop just for teens. Need a resume? No problem. Teen Job Prep makes it easy with their custom resume builder designed especially for teens with little or no experience. Just answer a few simple questions and your teen will have a professional resume in minutes. Not sure how to get a job? No problem. Teen Job Prep's fun and engaging animated video training will teach them everything they need to know from how to find a job, how to apply for a job, how to ace an interview, and, most importantly, how to keep a job. Teen Job Prep gives your teen the tools and confidence they need to land a job that's right for them. Don't let stress and anxiety get in the way of your teen's future. Let Teen Job Prep help. Check out teenjobprep.com and enter the code Talking to, teens to get 15% off your order. That's teenjobprep.com and the code is teens for 15% off your order. There's a couple words that you mention in your book that you use a lot when you're talking about this kind of stuff and the two words are stinks and handle. Why are why are these such popular words for you and uh do you recommend parents use them as well?
1: Yes. Okay, so these for me have changed my practice. Like if you if you said like Lisa, you only <laughs> get two words to work with in your old clinical practice are go, like leave me stinks and handle. Okay. So what we're up against, right, is the sense that um you're not supposed to feel anxious and anxiety is bad. And what we're also up against is the fact that it is quite uncomfortable, that, you know, bad things happen, stress feels bad, anxiety feels bad. And it's very easy for people to make the leap that if this doesn't feel good, it can't be good for me, right? Which I get where people start with that. But then I always think, yeah, well, exercise doesn't feel good. And we know it's good for you, right? Everybody. Knows. <laughs> so, so you can't use the fact that it's uncomfortable as a sign that it's, you know, not permissible.
0: Right. Brussels sprouts are great for you too, yeah.
1: Brussels sprouts are great for you. Right. There's lots of things in life that we know are good for you that you may or may not enjoy. Or that may be flat out unpleasant. Right. And that that's a thing that I think we need to revisit and revisit because there has been this shift in the culture, and
0: mm-hmm. I, I worry
1: that there has been this, you know, kind of selling of this idea that you're supposed to feel good all the time, right? Which, like, no generation before us ever thought this. You know, this is not something that I think is a very useful idea. It may even be a very harmful idea. So, when to bring it back to those words, so when kids tell me, when kids and teenagers tell me about something that was awful, right? They got cut from the team, they got in a terrible fight with their friend, you know, they got a flat tire, they got a you know, they they, they felt bad, they got upset about something. Often the um unspoken message and what they're saying to me is I felt bad, I shouldn't have felt bad. Like there's something wrong that I even felt bad. And I don't feel that way. I feel like, yeah, no feeling bad's part of like getting out of bed. Like at some point in the day, you're probably gonna feel bad. And so what I say back to them is that stinks, right? That stinks and I rest on it. And what I hope my unspoken message is, here's a ton of empathy, but I have no problem with the fact that that occurred to you. Right, like, or I fully Mm. accept I fully accept that stuff like this is going to go down. I, I and so when saying stinks, I'm sort of and stopping there. I'm saying I'm going to give you empathy. I'm doing nothing to try to fix this or undo it.
0: Right. I'm not jumping into how dare they mode. Yeah. 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 Right.
1: Exactly. Right. Like, oh man, that stinks. You know, and it's kind of got that, you know, other unspoken message like, oh yeah, that awesome. stuff like that happens.
0: Oh that happens man, me, stuff you know? like that happens man. to me too. Yeah. Time, yeah. You know,
1: to say all that but they're like oh yeah that one that stinks right like that's all in there
0: yeah right right
1: first you do that and then you move into the question of whether it's in the sort of bucket of stuff they could possibly manage right and and the way for me all the back thinking on this is like okay life comes in two categories you know things that are life and annoying and frustrating and most of things that stinks and things that are full-on crises, right? And there are crises. Most of what kids bring when they're feeling very, very distressed is in the handle bucket. So I sort of think, try to like articulate that, oh, this is not a crisis. This is in the handle bucket. So I'll say to kids like, oh man, that really stinks that you didn't make the team. Like, I know you wanted that. I know you wanted that. And then I'll pause and I'll say. How can we help you handle this and And it's a vote of confidence of this is in your capacity to manage and not enjoy <laughs> right, nor does it ad- require an adult to call the coach and make a thing of it. I'm here to help right. you find a way to weather it and and that those two words in my experience economically do so much work.
0: So another section is about um, helping girls dealing with uh, situations with boys. And there's a really cool part of this where you're talking about situations that are kind of murky because, you know, because pe- people are more complicated than they are on TV. And they're, it's not just always so obvious that, that you know, someone is uh, is doing something that is, is crossing the line. So how do you, um, as a parent kind of prepare teenage girls to deal with those like murky situations with boys where they feel like that's, mm, that's not really okay with me, but I'm not really sure if that's something I should make a big deal about.
1: This was, I'm really glad we're talking about it. I will tell you, this was the hardest part of the book to write. Because I wade into, like you say, really murky waters. And yeah. I, you know, one, one would really rather not. <laughs> it, it exposes you to like critique and, you know, it, it raises questions about, you know, the strength of one's feminism, right? I mean, like it's easier yeah. to, to stick to the dogma. But so the, here's <sighs> the dogma. and And I think this is what you're referring to. And, and I've been part of this dogma, is that when we talk with young women about their the physical side of their romantic lives, we talk about these moments where they may be engaged in something, you know, making out with somebody, somebody, and it starts to go to a place they don't want to go. And we say to them, you know, in those moments, you need to say no. You need Just to say, say no. no. Right. This is not what I want. And this is really well-meaning advice. Right. The, the idea behind it being it's crystal clear, you know, there's no um, no wiggle room for interpretation. And then also, and I hate to say this, but I know this is part of what informs our advice to young young women is, you know, when these things end up in court.
0: Exactly, right. Do, or just the judiciary process of your college or anybody who's looking at it later on.
1: Exactly. One of the critical questions is going to be, did you say no? So this is where advice comes from, and this is why I gave it for years and years myself. Okay, but then I'm sitting with my own clients, and I'm talking to colleagues who sit with similar clients, and here's what we keep hearing. We keep hearing from fabulous, smart, totally know-themselves, know-what-they're-doing young women that they were in romantic situations where things started to go down a path they didn't want to go, and they were very well aware in the moment that it was a path they didn't want to go, and yet they were, they could not, and they knew the advice, they knew what they were supposed to do in finger quotes, and they could not say the word. And in unpacking it, in unpacking it, there were two reasons, two reasons come up that they can't say the word. And these reasons, it turns out, have been explored in the linguistic literature and are backed by people who look at language and the impact of language. So the first reason is that they actually like the person. They like the guy. They um, are building a relationship with the guy or would like to have an ongoing building relationship with the guy. And they are aware to say to someone, no, is actually a very rare thing. There's actually highly developed what linguists call refusal strategies that every culture has. and so um, and, the, and they're very well prescribed, and everybody knows them even if we're not conscious of them. So the... American refusal strategy is um, if I invite you to my dinner party and you don't want to come, the first thing you will do is you will pause. The next thing you will do is you'll say, oh, thank you so much for thinking of me. The next thing you will do is you will offer me an excuse. But I'm so bummed we already have plans that night. Right? And right. then the fourth thing you will do is you will say, like, I'm so sorry. You know, you'll, so like, okay, so, so that, that's like, you know, it has a little bit of variance, but that is the American strategy for refusal. Yeah. If I invite you to my dinner party, if I say, hey, you know, would you like to come to my dinner party? And you said, no. Right? Like, that would be a bizarre thing to do. And it would be perceived in our culture as really hostile, really rude, and basically relationship rupturing. Right, I mean, like, you can't, you would, right. can, I mean, would you maintain a friendship with somebody, right? So, and then you know, refusal strategies are very, very culturally bound, and so I don't know much about this, but I know in Japan there are refusal strategies where there are yeses that are understood to be noes, right? I mean, it's a really elaborate mm-hmm. thing. Sure. So here we have one situation: the girl likes the guy and doesn't want to blow up the relationship. And so we've only given her an option that, in our culture, does that. Okay, so that's one reason why they don't use no. Another reason is, like I said, it is an aggressive move, right? It is antagonizing, right? If I say to you, do you want to come to my dinner party? And you're like, no. I mean, you're almost starting a fight. And (laughs) and the other other reason girls would say is, I was scared. I was scared in that moment. And so there's this phenomenal linguist named Deborah Cameron – And she has studied this. And what she says is, why would we urge young women who may feel threatened to use a strategy that is widely received in our culture as antagonistic, you know, to basically anger someone who has more power and maybe really charged up sexually, you know, in this moment. Mm -hmm. So it's not – while it sounds great for us to say it in a classroom or in our guidance to girls – when we're talking in the abstract... That yeah,
0: feels really empowering, you know, to say no,
1: yeah, be strong. Yeah, but put it on the ground, and it, it doesn't work in two situations that are actually pretty decently likely. Either she's, yeah, she likes the person yeah. who doesn't want to blow up the relationship, or this has started to go down a path that's frightening, and she doesn't want to antagonize the person.
0: Um, it's kind of like the the misconception that we have about how sexual assault happens like it's not some stranger if it's some person on the street or something who is like in in a dark alley trying to assault you then yeah no say no stop like um that would make sense right but like that's not how sexual assault happens like it's somebody that you know it's somebody that you're even dating and you don't want to just completely blow up the relationship like you you know you want to do something that lets them know you're not okay with what's happening, but still, like, preserves that relationship going forward.
1: Exactly. And often, you know, I'm taking care of college-age women, and, and, and also, I mean, this is not just college, this is high school. The other thing we forget is, okay, you may or may not want to have an ongoing relationship with this person, but you're all part of the same social network. So if you blow it up yeah. with this guy, right, this actually has widespread ramifications for who you hang out with at all next Saturday night. I mean, it's really, you know, totally. really, it gets very, very nodded.
0: Especially with someone popular and, yeah, yeah, right. Really.
1: Exactly. So the one place where a no probably works is where um, both partner parties are using what we call affirmative consent, where, like, at every step of the way, you know, the parties say, like, would you like this to happen, right? And then you can say, no, right? and it's, I mean, but that's, that. I would love to
0: think uh... that was going on all the
1: time. That'd be great if that's what's going on all the time. We also have to plan for other, probably much more likely, possibilities.
0: Right? Yeah.
1: So, so what I have started to say to girls is that no is one option, but they have other options too. And so, what I say to them is, you can say that it's not what you want. In a wide variety of ways, you can't be equivocal. You can't say, I'm not sure I want to do this, right? That is too soft.
0: Yeah, I I don't think so.
1: Yeah, you can say, look, I'm really into this. I'm not, I don't want to do that, right? Like that is an acceptable first pass at this. Like I'm really into this, but I don't want to do that. Is a way to say, I don't want this, but I like you, right? That you can have the two together or some version of that. The other thing that I have watched girls do successfully, and for me, what matters is the success of the strategy, is that they will say, "Oh my gosh, I just forgot. I for you know, I I told a friend I would meet her. I have to go," and that has, for some girls, gotten them out of situations where they didn't want to do it and they were scared about how it would be received or worried that it would be taken personally and that gave them cover to immediately end the interaction without um hurting the feelings or antagonizing the person they were t- turning down and and so what I like to think about is to say to girls, look, you have a whole toolbox of communication strategies at your disposal, right? So you know, like that's a hammer, right? If you're in a bar and some random dude <laughs> shows up, right, and starts like, you know, being gross on you, you know, say whatever you want to him. You don't know him. Yeah. You are safe. You are, you know, you can lay it down in, you know, really, you know, brutal terms if you want. That's one tool in your toolbox. You also may have your canned air when you say to someone, this is so fun. I really enjoy this. I hope we can hang out another time. I don't want to do this tonight, right? That, that That is another option. And I feel like we have to acknowledge that young women are going to find themselves in a huge variety of situations, that communication is incredibly context-driven And they need to have a lot of tools at their disposal.
0: We're here with Dr. Lisa Damore talking about stress, anxiety, and teenage girls. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: Boys care about their relationships and girls care about their relationships. Girls are socialized by our culture, to be concerned about the needs of others, to address the needs of others, and make themselves available to meet the needs of others. So for girls more than boys, it is hard to turn people down. So the parent may not actually have, in the moment, the capacity to be like, you know, here are all the things that are off the table if you don't do this now. You may not know that. But if the kid knows the parent well enough, and the parent is predictable enough, the kid's like, I have a pretty good sense of where this is going to come home to roost. Yeah. it, to me, seems like a workable system.
0: Should we tell our daughters that they're beautiful?
1: This is so difficult. Okay, so, of course, yes. To <laughs> <laughs> some level, like, I can't help it, right? I'm like, I just, you know, when you're, when you're a parent, you're like, oh, my God, you look so cute. But one of the things that I started to have more qualms about is the everyone is beautiful reassurances that we sometimes give girls where we say like all bodies are beautiful um you know all forms of beauty are beautiful there's you know beauty is wide wide ranging okay so i i'm kind of agnostic on the question of whether or not that's true here's what i do know girls don't buy it right when we say yeah, like all bodies right. are beautiful like you can just like you can see them they're like oh come on you know we all know which bodies are in magazines and which bodies are not in magazines. Right, right. And
0: who's getting attention from boys and who's not at school. And who's like, come on, it's obvious. Yeah, right, right. Come
1: on, right. So I feel like, first of all, whatever else, you lose them. <laughs> so you can't do anything good if you've lost them. But then the other thing that has started to weigh on me about those reassurances is, is that we're still talking about appearance.
0: How do you uh, balance, you know, um, find the right number of teachable moments and not turn into the parent who is trying to just turn everything into one?
1: It's a tough one, right? Because it feels like (laughs) there's so many moments where you're just like, I just want to tell you this. Um, What I would say is a lot of parenting comes down to what you don't say and how good you are at biting your tongue. And I would not want parents to underestimate the positive benefits of keeping their mouths shut. You know, that if you're always giving lessons, then your kid's going to tune you out. And then when you do say something, it's not going to have much meaning. So I would say for sure, pick your moments. And then I would also say, engage that mature side of your teenager before you start.
0: Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.